from AM and FM stations around the country. Welcome to the Small Business Administration award-winning School for Startups Radio, where we talk all things small business and entrepreneurship. Now, here is your host, the guy that believes anyone can be a successful entrepreneur because entrepreneurship is not about creativity, risk, or passion, Jim Beach. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another exciting edition of School for Startups Radio. It's a very special edition. It's our first show in January 2024. Welcome to the new year. I hope you had fantastic holidays, a great new year, and all of the fun associated with that. I hope you have made some goals, written them down, shared them during the holidays. I think maybe on the 30th, my wife and I had a hot tub together and swapped goals for the year. That was what we did. It was a great conversation, a married couple conversation. And uh, I'm really excited for 2024. And I hope you are too. I'm excited for a bunch of great shows too. We have been hard at work over the holidays, getting shows ready for the new year. And we just have an amazing slate of guests coming up here in the month and for the rest of the year. Uh, the show continues to grow. We are on 68 AM FM stations now and still have a huge loyal listenership online as well, uh, especially our good friends at AM FM 24-7 out of Tampa. Really appreciate them. Just great things ahead and looking forward to a fantastic year. I hope you are too. My favorite line of entrepreneurship is this, that entrepreneurs don't lay in bed at night worrying. They lay in bed at night, at night dreaming of the possibilities and the future. Just a great way to think about it. All right, for our first show today, we have David Greenspan. He is the founder of a company called Blue Case, a very cool story. And from UC Berkeley, the head of their entrepreneurship program, Dr. Richard Lyons is with us. Great show. Let's get started in just a second. Thanks for being with us. Startups Radio hopes you will reach out to us if you have any questions or comments, or if you need help with your business at any stage, from concepts to exit. Jim accepts all connections on LinkedIn. He tweets from at Entrepreneur Jim, and he responds to emails at james.beach at att.net. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy the show. We are back in again. Thank you so much for being with us and hope you had a great holiday and welcome back, all that stuff. We are very excited to have our first guest of the day, the week, the month, the year. Please welcome David Greenspan. He is the chief growth officer of a company called Blue Case. He's also author of a new book, Be a Better Team by Friday. We are going to discuss it and the, I think, seven key 
tricks that will teach us on how we can actually be better. David, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Thanks, Jim. I'm doing great. I had a great holiday and I'm happy to be here. Well, welcome. We are glad to talk to you and we're going to have your co-author on the show in a week or so, Justin, I believe. Tell us about the book, Be a Better Team by Friday. Yeah. Well, so Jim, I have a PhD in a field called high performance psychology. So it looks at why do certain teams and individuals perform at exceptional levels, even in suboptimal circumstances. And people would always come up to us and come come up to me and come up to Justin and ask, uh, well, can you just simplify it? Can you just, in one sentence, can you explain it to me? And it's a little more complicated than that. So we said, all right, we're going to write this book. Um, and the reason it's called Be a Better Team by Friday, a playbook for high-performance business leaders, is the way we think about leadership is we should be able to teach you something, and within a few minutes, you should be able to apply it and be better immediately. Um, it shouldn't be theoretical. It should be something that makes you better. It makes your team better. So that's a little bit uh, about the book. Okay. Is that possible that I can really be better You know, just 10 seconds later after I've heard it? Don't scream. Okay, I'm not going to scream now, but I still like to scream at my employees, David. <laughs> well, it does require application and it does require willingness and practice, right? So I think the idea is, is that how do you take something, concepts, make them simple to understand, practical to apply, so that if you're doing the practice, you can be improving and getting better. It doesn't mean that you're going to be a master but it does mean that you're going to have a very practical way of doing something different that is going to impact the way you lead and the people around you. All right. As I said, there are seven practices in the book. Can we go through one of those and get an example? Sure. Yeah. So one of the practices that we talk about is getting real with each other. And a lot of times, you know, entrepreneurs are, they're working with people, they're working with teams, and there oftentimes is a conversation that isn't happening. It's not, it's, it's happening behind the founder's back, right? Like when the founder is in the room, um, people change how they're speaking. And what you want to be able to do on a, high performance team is actually be able to have the real conversation in front of each other. So to do that, you have to build trust and you have to build trust quickly. So we do a practice called getting real with each other where you take the team, the executive team, and you share the highs and lows of your life, personal, professional that you've had. And what it does is when you do that, it, creates a lot of vulnerability-based trust on the team. And after you've had those conversations personally with each other, the type of, it's a lot easier to have a conversation about a business challenge. Like, hey, I don't think your sales plan makes sense. I think there's a better way to do it. I think that you're being overly optimistic because you've just shared the three highs and three lows of your entire life. So that's one of the practices is to get real with each other. And the idea is, is can you have a level 10, what we call a level 10 conversation? Um, could I have a, a conversation with you where I'm actually sharing everything I think 
in a respectful way, in a kind way, versus what typically happens is when we come into a team and talk to a team, they're usually, people are usually at about a five, maybe a six, maybe a seven. Well, that's, you know, a five is five and six are failing grades and a seven, 70%, that's a C. We want the teams to be at a 10 and getting real with each other is one of the ways to do that. So David, it reminds me of a story. I was the co-founder of a business back in the nineties and it grew large. It grew to some 600 employees over a short time, just five or six years. And my co-founder was named Doug and we were best friends and worked together every day to build this business. And never once did we have the discussion about who was the boss or who was in charge or who was the CEO or anything like that. And one day we were sitting with a man that we were trying to get to help us. He was on the board of governors for the California school system, the collegiate school system. And so a very high up guy and had actually been on the cover of fortune magazine and such. And he asked us, who's the CEO. And without a second pause, David, I said, I am <laughs> and Doug looked at me. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, what? we had never talked about it. And now all of a sudden I have just appointed myself CEO. And did it go? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No. Yes. And no. Yes. In the short term, two years later, as we were facing bankruptcy and had about $10,000 left in the bank. I got a call that a check had bounced and I was like, but there's $10,000 in the bank. And I opened up the account and there was zero in the bank. And he had taken the last $10,000 cleared out the bank and had gone to Jamaica for the weekend with his girlfriend and said that I was the CEO and it was my problem. (laughs) Got it. (laughs) Yeah. Just a little subtle, you know, Yeah. two years later, Oh, it's your problem. So, uh, no, it didn't turn out well, I guess, is the answer. Yeah. Well, it's a great story, and it's actually not uncommon, right? That's a conversation you probably weren't having because it's a tough conversation. There, was, there could be some conflict. There could be some feelings. Uh, and it, how do you do it? How do you have that conversation? Well, we found that when you create this baseline of trust with each other, it creates such power. We did this with a team. There was four different companies coming together. And this, they were in the construction business. So you can sort of imagine, you know, fairly masculine guys. Yeah, it, was all, think, yep. it, was, it was all men. Um, and they were forming into one company. Each of these executives were running their own company. And they came together. They did this. Um, and the acquiring company CEO did it as well with them. And this was right at the beginning. And... A few years later, they went, this company went public and the CEO of the, of the public company was attributed this exercise, the getting real with each other to the fact that they were able to manage the integration so well, that there was so much trust after doing this, that they could have the tough conversations, work through things in a respectful way. And a lot of times people have never even had these conversations with some of their best friends. 
So this is an ex this is an example of how you build trust and uh, and it really sets the foundation for a lot of other conversations. It's hard. You can't jump into a lot of other conversations if you're not having the real conversation. And typically when we sit in on meetings, um, most meetings are ordinary. They're ordinary because people aren't, aren't, aren't saying anything that's high heat. They're not bringing up who should be the CEO. They're talking about the easy stuff. Well, you need to be able to talk about the hard stuff. So this allows you to do it. And when you can do that, you know, people are incredibly creative and intelligent and innovative. And once you can have the real conversation, you can get to it and solve stuff. Tell us about the coaching business and we'll come back to the book in a minute. Tell us about Blue Case. Yeah. Um, well, Blue Case was founded in 2013. And uh, we've noticed that a lot of companies and teams, there's unused engagement, intelligence, motivation, creativity that's offline. It's in the company, but it's like gold in the ground. It's not being used. And um, typically, um, when they've researched this, it's about 70%. So about 70% of the intelligence, creativity, and innovation, it's offline. You're paying for it, but you're, but you're only getting about 30%. And so we were founded to really take that um, unused potential and put it online. Um, and we combine high-performance psychology with strategic planning and executive coaching to do that. All right. And when you started the business, did you have clients immediately? Talk to us about the fiscal. Go back and like give us an entrepreneurial history lesson. Uh, what'd you do first? How'd you get your first customers? Does it take much money to start a coaching business? Or were you able to bootstrap? Walk us through that kind of stuff. Yeah. Great questions, uh, Jim. Thanks. So it was bootstrapped. Um, it was initially, I, I initially founded the company and um, in the beginning, one of the things that I did that was important is I put a brand promise in place and said, if you don't, you're unhappy with, uh, with what we do, you can short pass. And that includes, um, you can write on ever uh, on the invoice, whatever you think it's worth, including zero dollars. And that will be considered full payment. So I, I'm, and so I guaranteed the work. Um, in the beginning, you know, you, we did some, um, some of our initial clients, we did some equity with where it was an equity and cash. Um, and what would happen is, is we focused on, you know, how do we just deliver incredible results for the first client? So they're such a raving fan that they tell, they tell their other companies and friends about us. And so what we did is that's, that's how we started it. Um, you know, it was one, one client at a time and then, and then the second client, and then those clients got great results and they started telling their friends. So we, we worked with a company, they were maybe, they were struggling, maybe worth $10 million. And two of the people on their executive team, they didn't really have time to work with us, but two of the people on their executive team were, they were in conflict. They weren't getting along and it was a product person and a development, um, person and the ceo knew that they could not move forward if two of their executive team members were not getting along there was too much interference and there's a lot of them i bet you killed one of them in a car wreck that's what we did uh 
anyway, so that company, we, you know, we worked with them over two days. We got the team to be a high performance team. That company went on to grow to $1.3 billion wow. um, to a global leader. And, $10 but billion it, to $1.3 billion? Yep. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. But, you know, it comes from the, it comes from leadership. People think, you know, there's that expression, um, uh, culture eats strategy for breakfast by a drucker. You know, everyone's heard that before. Yep. This is an, this is a demonstration. They have an incredible culture. They they great. They, we, they put practices in place for everyone to become a better leader. And so the company scaled really quickly. So that what industry bit, was that in? Um, that was in technology. So yeah, that was a tech company. Does the um, industry matter for your clients, David, if, uh, are certain companies better attuned to hearing this and listening perhaps? Yeah. Great question. Well, um, we're industry agnostic. It tends to be office it, it, office workers. That tends to be who we work with. The companies also have to be successful and be making money. So we don't do turnarounds. And if a company's in financial trouble, you know, it's just not a good fit for us. We do companies that are growing, that are successful, but the CEO wants to go faster. He or she is frustrated because they're not going fast enough or they have... Um, uh, and one of the other characteristics that is that usually the companies that work with us are trying to disrupt an industry that they're, and the CEO is a learner. He or she is curious. They know that no matter how smart they are, that there's, that they need a coach, they need to learn. And so that it's kind of more about the mindset of the CEO rather than the industry. And how do you find clients now? How do you go about marketing and then actually closing the sale? A lot of it is referrals. You know, we've had a lot of great success stories. You know, we've four of the companies we worked with crossed the billion dollar threshold while working with us. That's not because of us, but I don't think they would have gotten there without us. And um, they've so and they've shared those stories. So a piece of it is a large piece of it is referrals, and then we do do marketing as well you know we're active on linkedin we just published this book um and you know we do some outbound work as well let's go back to the book be a better team by friday we had gotten one of the practices of great ceos and teams we talked about getting real let's talk about another one or two um you want to talk about mindset Sure. Yeah. Choose um, your mindset. Talk about that. Yeah. That's the first practice is choose your mindset. And um, part of what we want to, part of what we want to create in our organization is a, a team flow and um, a person can be in a state of flow. Um, you know, we've heard that term a lot and a lot of times people are in a mindset that's very disempowering. Um, they're oftentimes in a in a, a victim mindset, in a what we call a complaining mindset, um, and they're complaining about things or they're feeling persecuted by something. Um, and we really work with leaders to help them actually intentionally choose their mindset because the mindset is like a pair of glasses you're wearing, and the glasses could make everything rosy. It could make everything look dark. And depressing, and people don't recognize that they're. We're always coming from a mindset. When you wake up in the 
in the in the morning you have a mindset that's that's actually shaping everything you see right um and so to be able to intentionally choose it and so what we want what we teach people how to actually choose a creator mindset um and the big thing with choosing your mindset is to be focused on what you want not what you don't want okay I'll say that again that seems like the key to me because so much David, when my mind is bad, it's when my mindset is bad, it's because of things that are pissing me off. Sure. Right. And so you're saying to focus on, go through that again. Yeah. Well, and same, same with me, right? When you're focusing on something that pisses you off, um, it, you know, then you're, you're basically walking around, you're, you're noticing everything you don't want, but you're not. So the way you shift your mindset from a complaining mindset to a creator mindset is to ask yourself the question, what do I want? And as soon as you can articulate what you want, you are now articulating a vision, a commitment towards something that you want to achieve or work towards or be living into. When, as long as you're complaining, you're talking about what's wrong, what's missing, and you're not actually taking, you're not moving your life forward. Um, as soon as you can articulate what you want, you're then starting to, then, then it becomes clear what is, the, what is a baby step that you could take towards that. Does that land? Yeah, it does. Yep. Um, you know, so like an example might be you're, you're at a meeting and you're frustrated in a meeting because the, the meeting doesn't start on time. People aren't prepared. There's just a bunch of talk. That's, that's all those things are complaints. But if you're talking about what is the commitment, okay, I'm committed to having extraordinary meetings that are worth everybody's time. Great. What would be a baby step about how to get there? How would you create that? And then as soon as you ask yourself the question, you're going to start thinking of different things you could do. And then you could start putting those um, into place. And so the next step is after you articulate what is it that I want, then the next part of it is who's doing what by when? And really thinking about what is the exact action, who's doing it, and by when are they going to do it to move this vision forward? So, so if call, I get Fred to yeah. promise that he shows up on time because it always pisses Sally off. So I'm going to have Fred promise to show up on time and in return, I, I he gets the first question. Sure. Yep. That would be an example of an, of an action to, um, yeah, to, to set up the meeting for success to create, we call it a structure for fulfillment yep. on your, what you want. But that's a, yes, that's an example. All right. Give us one more. We have time for one more thing from the book and David, do you want yeah. to pick one or shall I, um, I, I could give you another, you know, the third practice. So we've okay. covered mindset. We've covered, get real with each other. The third one, just to go in order is know the fundamental why. Um, and the, with the fundamental why is a lot of times people are doing things, but they don't, they haven't articulated what the why is. There's always an underlying commitment or a why behind a meeting, behind a company, behind a project, and behind a person. And if you can 
articulate what that fundamental why is, what that underlying commitment is, it creates great power because then everyone knows what you're trying to accomplish. In a sense, it goes back to the last conversation we were saying, it's the vision. You start saying, hey, this is the the fundamental why of this meeting is that we can move the company forward um, and uh, in a productive way where we're all having fun and you know, making good money and we're fulfilling the promise of the company. And people have a fundamental why too. People have a why of why they do things. And a lot of times when people aren't motivated, it's because the manager doesn't know what the why of the person is. They don't know what their why is. And so we can have a why. A meeting can have a why. A company has a why. A project has a why. And when you understand it, it gives you a lot more ability to then create, to create something together because you're starting from the right foundation. You have a foundation of shared understanding and shared commitment. Makes a lot of sense. David, great stuff. Congratulations on the book. It is five-star rated on that Amazon place. I looked. How do we find out more? Follow online. Talk to Blue Case. All of that, please. Yeah. Thanks, Jim. Well, a uh, great thing to do is you could go to be a better team book um dot com and that uh, on there you get a free chapter of the book you could take an assessment that we have so it's our, it's called betterteambook.com there's no b in it betterteambook.com you can also um look us up on linkedin we're blue case strategic partners we're called blue case because jet fuel comes in blue cases and we're like jet fuel for companies so um, we're on LinkedIn. Better Team Book uh, would be .com would be a good place to find us. And I really appreciate this podcast and your show. And thanks for taking the time, Jim. It is our pleasure. David, thank you so much for being with us. And I look forward to interviewing your co-author soon in a week or two. Awesome. Thank you. And we'll be right back. Well, that's a, that's, a, that's a wonderful question. Oh, my gosh. I love the opportunity to do this. Thank you, Jim. Wow, that's, that's, awesome. that's a great one. You know, that is a phenomenal question. That's a great question, and, and I don't have a great answer. It, that's a great question. Oh, that is such a loaded question. And that's actually a really good question. School for Startups Radio. We are back in again. Thank you so very much for being with us. I am very excited to introduce another great guest. Please welcome Dr. Richard Lyons to the show. He is all over UC Berkeley. He has been the former dean of the business school, Berkeley Haas. He is the associate vice chancellor and chief innovation and entrepreneurship officer. He had a very successful career in the non-academic world as well. He was the chief learning officer at Goldman Sachs. That's pretty cool. Right now, though, he is excited to tell us about the school and some recent news that's come out about them and their rankings as terms of entrepreneurship, you do not get any more prestigious and important than UC Berkeley. Dr. Lyons, welcome. How are you doing? 
Thank you, Jim. I'm doing very well. So what's the big news? You recently came out number one in drum roll, please. Well, thank you for that. Yeah, so PitchBook puts out annually new data on which universities across the world are producing the most venture-funded startups, and Berkeley was number one in the ranking that came out just about a month ago. Fantastic. So that means students coming through your program got more VC funding? What does it mean exactly? Yeah, that good question. So it is focusing on undergraduates. There are lots of different ways to slice the data. You could slice it with the graduate students or more faculty or what have you. And it is venture funded. So this is the number of venture funded startups from undergraduates at UC Berkeley, more of those numbers of companies than than any other university. All right. Well, I mean, you're right there in the thick of things. They're as close as could be. So the biggest, best school in the neck of the woods. Uh, how many venture capitalists would you say are on campus once a year? How many connections to VCs would a student have if you went through the program? Oh, it's a good question, Jim. And I, I couldn't even guess because, you know, as with a lot of great research universities, venture capitalists are are screening what's going on at universities in a very intensive way. I mean, they're connecting with our faculty specifically, which labs are producing the most research. We even have a document on our website, the top 100 faculty founders from Berkeley. And, you know, there are more than 100. That's why it's top 100. But anyways, there are lots of VCs that look at that list and say, wow, I knew 25 of those people. Another 30 or 40 are in fields I don't follow. But there are 25 or 30 more that I need to make contact with. So I think the quick answer is, you know, many tens uh, in a given year, right? Probably 100 different VC organizations in a year. And that's just a crazy guess. All right. Let's start at the very beginning. Can entrepreneurship be taught or are you just born that way? Ah, well, I love the question. It's an age old question. It's still a good one. Um, my answer is this. When you think about the wonderful universities that, that we're talking about here, the world's great research universities in particular, we're not talking about pulling a human being out of an urn and asking, you know, do you not just have kind of the personal characteristics, but also do you have the, the life conditions that allow you to, to be an entrepreneur? Uh, here, you know, we're talking about students coming to Berkeley, coming to this geography, uh, most of them with advantages, but Berkeley's a public university. So giving access to people who lived with disadvantage is a really important part of Berkeley. But I think the quick answer is we absolutely believe the answer to that is yes, that the, the students that are coming here and the faculty and staff and, and our alumni too, we, we can see the Delta and I could talk about how we produce that Delta, that change. Well, yeah. What do you actually teach? What's, is it teaching leadership or teaching risk-taking? Do you all go bungee jumping just so that you get used <laughs> to adrenaline? Do you teach creativity? Uh, what do you teach? How to yeah, well, go on and a lot more. I don't yeah, believe well, you. I you think know, you're the, lying to me. Hey, good, good. Uh, please keep pushing back. Well, you know, there, there are lots of things, you know, getting, getting the, the hands dirty, as they say. But let me give you one quick example. Ultimately, words like founder and entrepreneur and venture, these are not very inclusive terms. They're just a lot of people who don't feel 
included in words like that, right? You know, it's sort of like they do that. Other people do that. That's not my tribe. But, you know, and, and a lot of not just 17, 18, 19 year olds feel that way, but a lot of any year olds feel that way. And so part of what you want to do is if this is going to be like entrepreneurship for all, if you're really talking about it that way. You gotta, you gotta give people a way to to connect to this, and so we created a program. I'll tell you what the name is it of it is at Berkeley. The way we think about it is a wider, more inclusive way to teach entrepreneurial thinking. Okay, and I'll come back to that phrase, entrepreneurial thinking. But um, I, I can describe what's in the class. But let me just tell you what happened. We launched this program. I'll give you the name in a second. On in the summer of 2020, and over 500 incoming students signed up. It just exploded. So something truly resonated, and now we're sort of reaching 20 to 30 percent of Berkeley undergrads with one of these courses. The name of the program is the Berkeley Changemaker. So the idea of change making, especially with the word Berkeley in front of it, given Berkeley's history. So what we teach in that program real quickly, critical thinking, a.k.a. Solve problem solving, but critical thinking, communication, especially oral communication and and um, and collaboration, team skills, critical thinking, communication, collaboration. Those those are the punchy elements, as we see it, that go into more entrepreneurial thinking. All right. Well, I couldn't agree more that those are definitely needed. When you say research, can you tell me about some of the research? And I have to tell you a little story, Richard, before uh, I go on. I taught at Georgia State University in their MBA program. I taught uh, international entrepreneurship for about 10 years. I do not have a PhD, but I had done enough to qualify that the university thought that I should teach that class. And it was actually the number one ranked class in the university, in the business college. And uh, the guy who replaced me, I got fired, Richard. The guy who replaced me for, uh, I'll I'll digress upon my digression. I was dating a woman who had been a student and for three years openly dated her, took her to the class, like the uh, college faculty parties and things like that. Everyone knew that we were dating. We got engaged. I sent out announcements and invitations. I invited three secretaries, but none of the deans or anyone else like that. And within a month I was in trouble. Isn't that interesting? Mm -hmm. Anyway, yes. uh, the guy who replaced me had been studying. He's a PhD in entrepreneurship had been studying for the last seven years. The idea that when you're a beginning entrepreneur, you need lots of connections, but as you get further in your career, connections are not as important. And I and every other entrepreneur in the world goes, duh, you know, it took you seven years to figure that out and prove that one, you know, what the, you know, you know where I am. I hear you. I will stop babbling. Your thoughts. Yeah. You know, I think. So part of what what makes Berkeley or any big research university an engine for innovation and entrepreneurship is what's coming out of the STEM labs, right? The science, the technology, the engineering, mathematics is the M in STEM. And so the idea of uh, Jennifer Doudna, uh, a faculty member here, won the Nobel Prize a couple of years ago in biochemistry, shared it um, for CRISPR. And and, yeah. Bill Nye, the, the, the science guy, I heard him speak a couple of years ago. Somebody asked him, what's the biggest scientific 
achievement uh, over the last decade. And he immediately said CRISPR. So, um, you know, she is doing basic research. I mean, fundamental research, still doing like Nobel Prize quality research. And she also wants to see CRISPR and, and part of what she gave birth to changing the world, like sickle cell anemia disappears, Parkinson's disease, uh, you name it, many things that, that, are, that are being approached with this. So it doesn't mean that she needs to leave the lab. She's now bringing in postdocs and, and graduate students who want to start companies and so forth. And so it happens in a lot of those ways. So I just, you know, the research isn't just research about entrepreneurship. The research is about the, the, the foundational science that great universities have to keep doing, and then the intentionality in those universities to make sure in ways that, that are consistent with, with the mission and values of the university, make sure that those scientific advances are getting into the larger world, are changing people's lives. Well, I mean, that's great research. There's no doubt about what she's doing. That sounds absolutely fantastic. Uh, I guess my bias is more toward some of the things that are happening in more soft sciences, perhaps, um, you know, for you got your PhD at MIT in economics. Why, why isn't there a definitive answer for economics yet? Why are we still arguing about some of the fundamentals, you know, whether tax cuts are good or not? Why isn't that solved science? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. So, so strictly speaking, economics isn't a, a science; it's a social science, and so there there are human beings involved, and human beings are messy, uh, Jim. And and so when we're trying to think about human behavior, we we to try and understand it or predict it or model it, as economists often say. We, we have to make certain assumptions, and it, it's impossible to make assumptions that are universally valid because humans are just so, so complex. So to give you one a quick example, I mean, that one of the more recent bouts of Nobel Prize winners in, in economics were basically saying, we need to bring more psychology into economics, it's, it's so-called behavioral economics, because the idea that human beings are rational and just are optimizing, you know, their own personal interest at all times, it's like those, those assumptions are patently violated. And, and economists will often say, well, the, the assumptions can, can still be patently violated, but also be good descriptions of human behavior. Anyways, bottom line is these kind of difficult questions about what happens when you raise the minimum wage or is, you know, fiscal policy inflationary. These are hard and big questions and we bring as much data as we can to them. Uh, if you just, but I would look like if you thought about monetary policy and you thought about interest rates and you thought about managing the economy and yeah, inflation shot up and interest rates went up and, and inflation's coming down. Now you could say, yeah, 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 that was easy. It's like, no, that wasn't easy in the depression. You know, you go back a hundred years and people were saying, no, conservatism is the way you get out of depressions and things like that. We need to raise interest rates in the face of a depression. So it's like, we've learned a lot and we still have a lot to learn. I guess that's my bottom line. Well, that's a good way to put it. I am reminded by my father who was a physician and he said that still, it's 50-50 in medical school. 50% they teach you is known and 50% they're making up out of their ass. And so let's talk about something else made up out of my ass. Okay. 
Bitcoin. Yes. Uh, the whole crypto market. Where do we stand right now? There was a little bit of a rally toward the end of last year. It started to come back, right? Some of the indices. But we've had the two major convictions, Sam Bankman-Fried and then uh, Bitfinance, the other uh, big yep. exchange guy got Binance. Uh, Binance as well. Yep. I can't remember his yep. name right now. The Chinese guy. Um, the CEO of Binance, right. And strangely, I, I was fascinated by this. All of the press releases about his arrest didn't mention whether his uh, guilty plea was going to come with any time or not in prison. It was all the financial. He was going to have a $4 billion payment. But you know, prison time was completely not mentioned. So I thought that was interesting. What's your take on the state overall of crypto? Where are we? Uh, look, I here's I'm going to give you kind of maybe a standard answer, but at the at the bottom line, um, you you've got blockchain enabling technology that people are still working out what some of the applications are, and crypto is is one application, and there are many others. I think three or four years ago, people thought, oh, blockchain is going to just kind of surge through the global economy, and it's going to get used in supply chains and lots of different areas in operations. It is getting used, but I think a, a bit less than people thought. But here's the way I think about it. All right. The, I go back, you know, some of your, your listeners will remember the late 1990s, not all of them. And, you know, people were talking about this, this internet thing and it was explosive. You know, I was teaching here at Berkeley in the late nineties, 96, 97, 98, and so forth. And then people were saying, oh, but there are, you know, web band, anyways, these companies, people don't remember, but there were all these companies and saying, man, this looks like a bubble. There's just crazy bubble going on here. So, so I look at crypto that way. There's a lot of crazy bubble stuff, but the fundamental point is this. If somebody said, you know, the internet in 1998, somebody's saying this is going to transform the world. It's sort of like, here we are in 2023 and Amazon has kind of transformed the world. <laughs> so when people say, look at all those companies that died in, in 2000, 2001, 2005, whenever they died, it's like, yeah, there was an incredible cleansing of all the junk or maybe it was just experiments, which is a, a healthier way to say it. But the world did get transformed. And so my own view is that when you play this forward a decade or two, a lot of what we're talking about now will be gone. I view them as experiments. And there will be a few things blockchain-based and, and, and quote-unquote cryptocurrency category-based that will be transforming the way we do finance and the way we do economics. Yes. Well, I believe that. I think that you know, we always have to keep the blockchain separate from a financial discussion. Blockchain is also great for tracking fruit, making sure that your fruit is really as fresh as they say, or truly organic or whatever. And finance is just one of the applications. And so yep. I hope people keep that in mind. Blockchain, good. There's no doubt about that. And then the financial piece, well, that's a little bit separate. And then what about the role of stable coins? Are we going to end up with a basket of stable coins that are truly, truly stable backed by governments or uh, some sort of, I don't want to say currency, but some sort of thing that has actual value 
gold yeah. crazy? Yes. Well, my, my view is yes. I mean, I think if you look at the, so I'll use the word collateral, right? If somebody said this particular stable coin is 100% backed by like liquid, easy, easy, you know, true value collateral. And, and it's in an escrow account, so it could be captured. Nobody can run away with it at, at, the, at the moment of darkness, right? Then, you know, you'd have to say, look, that's as stable as any government that is, you know, pegging an exchange rate. You know, oh, oh, you remember the, anyways, back, way back when, when Argentina was pegging its, its uh, local currency to, to, the, to the peso, to the dollar, and, and many other fixed exchange rates, right? So it's like, is a government backing it? It's sort of like, look, I, I'm not an anti-government person, but the go- a government, quote unquote, backing a fixed exchange rate, whether it's one to one or any other number, it's like, oh, we have lots of history of, of governments not doing very well pegging exchange rates. Uh, in fact, it's, it's littered with examples of, of failed pegs. So, so if, you, if you also look at Tether, Right. I'm, I'm, I've written, I've done some research on Tether. I, I, I'm not out here to say Tether is the be all and the end all. But if you look at the quality of the accounting behind the collateral of Tether, it's like, what is the collateral? Is it really all there? Is it really sort of like capturable? If there's a crash, could, could people get 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 the collateral and that that sort of thing are they are they being held accountable are they reporting are they disclosing the quality of the collateral and and where it lives and then how it could be accessed if it needed to be accessed in a, in a crisis so if you look at tether which is very very large it's almost a hundred billion dollars worth of value um and it also is very important for facilitating transactions in the larger cryptocurrency world it's it, the quality of its collateral and the confidence that people have in its collateral has gone way up. It's not perfect, but it's gone way up over the last four or five years. And and so as as we if we were to compare that with a government used as an example, a government making a promise in the background, I think a lot of people look at at again just tether, there are many stable coins, but tether's one of the very biggest. Um, you, they would look at that and they'd say that feels safer than. It, you know, a government saying we will back this exchange rate. And at a macro level, what do you think is going to happen in the economy in the next year? You know, I feel the economy feels really weird to me right now. It feels like it feels like we're in a recession, but the data says we actually grew quite nicely. I think in the last quarter, uh, if I remember correctly, um, we have some industries that I think are in a recession and, you know, for example, mortgage brokers and then other industries that are booming through the roof. Still, it seems like we have a strange dichotomy going on. What's your feeling about the economy and where it goes? Well, I agree with that strange dichotomy and you know, and I know that it's, it's perilous to make predictions about the economy, but you, you asked me the questions are, this is one person's view. I'm not suggesting I'm a, I'm an expert forecaster, but yeah, I'm, I'm on just judging from the data, watching inflation, watching employment, unemployment, and other sort of key signals about where things are headed. You know, I'm in, I'm in the soft landing camp. I, 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 I think like most people, I, the, the odds of a recession have, have fallen considerably. 
inflation is coming down significantly. I think if, if there's any kind of news in my prediction, it's that I think rates will stay short term. Interest rates will stay higher longer than people think. And people are starting to say, oh, now we can finally predict maybe that the next you know, federal Fed funds or, or um, Fed interest rate move will be down. It's sort of like, even if it is down, I I, I see interest rates holding firm above above four percent for for quite a while, and we're above five percent now. I I'd be surprised if they drop below five percent in in twenty twenty four. So so that's part of my long my my soft landing calculus. I think it's going to take take interest rates at that level, short-term interest rates at that level to get inflation down to where the Fed wants it, which is two, the 2% target. All right. How much do you believe that number? I've seen some data that says inflation is really at 17%. And in some areas, it feels like 17%. Uh, if you go out to dinner, it feels like we've had more than 2% inflation or 5%. Uh, yeah, you know, in some areas it feels like we've had fifty percent inflation. Uh, what are your thoughts? Well, so yeah, thanks for that. I think it's a good question. This is one of the things where economists have definitions of words that that don't always square with people's practical reality, and you have to you have to pay mind to people's practical reality. But but the the inflation rate is the rate is the change in prices over a period of time. So if you say, well, what was the inflation over the last 12 months? It's like, well, where were prices a year ago and where are prices now? And we look at the difference and currently we're saying that's like three and a half percent or wherever we are right now. Um, but what people experience is like, look, if you have three and a half percent inflation, oh, I'll use a round number, four percent inflation over three years, right? You're 12 percent higher and that actually compounds. You're like 13 or more percent higher. And people are saying, you keep saying it's only 3% or 4%. It's like, I'm looking at prices and it feels like it's 15 or 20% higher. It's like, yeah, those two things are both true. They're both true. One is the, is the experience on the ground of people saying, we've had some inflation now for a few years or at least a couple of years at an acute level. And, and the, the, I'm going to the store and that price is 20% or more higher than it used to be. Absolutely true. So, you know, the Fed is not going to try and reverse those past price changes. The Fed's goal is to get any going forward price changes over a period of time, say a year, down to 2%. That's its goal. So those price levels are going to stay elevated, and that's not, not going to go in reverse. Your job is to make UC Berkeley entrepreneurship famous and get it recognized as number one in the world. How do you go about that? What are the things you do to make UC Berkeley the best known? Uh, I think that it, you know, when I make a list of the great, great programs, certainly UC Berkeley, and then there's Babson and, you know, play London school of economics, I think, uh, how do you compete with other great programs and how do you get yourself to be seen as number one well thanks for that you know we have a certain locational advantage you know well you as, do. as yes. well as i do that that you know geographies around the world have tried to replicate what this silicon valley that we're part of ha has created and it, it's very very hard to do that so we have that advantage another advantage people talk about culture this culture that but you know one of the the mindsets here at berkeley is question the status quo I mean, there aren't a lot of private 
great private university presidents that would say, hey, this university is all about questioning the status quo. Now, they have lots of scholars and smart people that are questioning the status quo, but this is Berkeley's DNA. The mindset of there's got to be a better way to do this, question the status quo, this is Berkeley's DNA. And I challenge presidents of private universities to go out and say that about their university. It's just not their DNA. It's not the way they're built. It's not their role in society in that same way. So, so that's a cultural element that, that feeds this in a major, major way. But your question was a little bit different. It's not where does it come from. but how, so, so part of it is telling the story I just mentioned, right? This idea of, hey, there are these cultural elements that are incredibly well aligned with this. A second part of it is the impact. Look, our faculty want their research. I mentioned Jennifer Doudnut. They want their research to have impact, right? She wants to cure sickle cell anemia, just to take another example, which, which CRISPR is helping to do. Well, nothing could be greater than if she does that. So, again, great example. Dr. Richard Lyons, how do we find out more about the program, get our kids in as undergrads, find out <laughs> more about the research, et cetera? Thank you for that. I appreciate your time, Jim. Well, you know, we have a wayfinding website for students on campus that is called begin.berkeley.edu, B-E-G-I-N, begin.berkeley.edu. And that's a directory of like all kinds of, you know, what are the accelerators? What are the incubators? Who are the funders? What are the degree programs? All of that kind of stuff. That would be a fun visit for people. And then the one other website on campus that might be fun for people is I-N-D-E, I-A-N-D-E, I-N-D, stands for Innovation and Entrepreneurship, I-N-D-E.berkeley.edu. And that's the website where I mentioned earlier, we have this top 100 faculty founders at Berkeley and, and a number of other things, like what are the accelerators and incubators at Berkeley, the top 10 uh, accelerators and incubators and contact uh, people for, for those sorts of things and, and other resources. Um, th those, I think, would be the most useful two websites. Fantastic. Thank you so much for being with us, sir, and I hope you have a great 24. You too, Jim. Thank you. We're out of time, but you know what we do. That's right. We come back tomorrow. Be safe, everyone. Take care and go make a million dollars. Bye now. <laughs>